Hello guys, holiday greetings from the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, North Wales' premier one-person true crime focusing show that seeks out some of the most darkest, most obscure and unfamiliar tales from all corners of the UK and Ireland. I'm Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, where it's great as ever to have you all joining me, and I hope that as you hear the episode, that you're all good and well. And so, Crimbo is upon us yet again, isn't it? Are you sick to the back teeth by now of hearing Wham or Slade or bloody the Pogues or whatever? Or have you already eaten your own body weight in mince pies? It's the busy month of December where every weekend seems to be a work's Christmas do. Or every spare moment that you have, you're running round like a blue ass fly trying to get Christmas gifts for people without really having a clue what to get for anyone. Then you forget the wrapping paper when you have got something, so you have to go back out for that only to then not get enough of it, or you forget to get sellotape or something, so you've got to go out again through the crowds of people, and then you realise that you haven't got cards, or you've forgotten someone's present, and by this time it's already turned into an absolute shamble of bollocks, and you think, oh bollocks to this, I'm just going to Weatherspoons instead. Is that familiar that, or is that just me? Every year I say to myself, I'm going to be organised this one, and I still find myself like this. In fact, it was today, Christmas Eve, and I was still at the supermarket, and it was like the thriller video there. It's not a big jumping wreck on that. As I said last year when I did the Ghosts of Christmas Past episode, people like me is why they sell the crap that they do on the counter at petrol stations, isn't it? So if you're really struggling for gifts, then Great Auntie Gladys can have the bloody tyre pressure gauge that she's never really wanted, and has absolutely no use for whatsoever. So this episode, I've decided, as it's the penultimate episode of the year, because this month's Patreon episode is still to come, of course, and I'll be out on New Year's Eve, that it will also be the finale to the show's fourth series. End of the year, end of the series, and it ticks the box in my part of my brain that likes order and everything to be nice and neat and boxed off. Plus, it also means that the planned finale shall now become the opener to Series 5 when the show returns in 2020. Now this isn't like Game of Thrones where you've got to wait years in between and hopefully the next series won't be as shit as the last one of that. I will be back very early into the new year because I love doing the show too much to just rest on my laurels. So the episode I've opted to finish series 4 upon concerns a, very, a fairly recent case that took place in the build up to this festive time of year. A sizeable part of it on the day this episode drops, Christmas Eve. Now I didn't want to class this as a Christmas special because there's absolutely no cheer about the events involved in this episode whatsoever. I know it's a traditionally a happy time of year for most and I have debated before as to whether or not to focus upon things so horrific that have taken place during it. But evil of course doesn't take a Christmas break 
and the maxim of the show is that no one should be forgotten. The victims concerned within the episode certainly shouldn't be, and I can guarantee that they aren't by their loved ones and friends, but I want to bring their names to a wider audience still. This month's Patreon bonus episode will also feature in the same vein, entitled Horrors of the Holidays, and new supporters who'll be able to hear this first and foremost are Ian Flintham, Sue, Selena Jones, Peter Bryant, Moira Kurland, Spring Monday Wise and Charlie McLeod. Thank you so much guys, your support is so appreciated, and along with the other returning supporters who also get my thanks of course, it helps keep the show running as it does. You too can join these guys for a very reasonable contribution each month, less than buying one of these famous Poundland sex toys that we've mentioned a few times on the show before, and nicking a supermarket trolley to wheel it home with, and you'll have chance to get yourself a few bits of stuff and access to the 23, almost 24, bonus feature-length episodes of the show, a couple of which include The Leftover List, The Portsmouth Casanova Murder, or Retribution, to name but a couple, with this month's Horrors of the Holidays coming in just a few days. Just head over to the Patreon site and seek out the show there, or there's the ever-present link with the episode show notes this time around. But we've got a series finale to do before any of that. So as I've said, it's upon us, and for it I've chosen a case that's a lot more recent than we would usually feature on the show. But it involves two horrific accounts of crimes that struck me greatly, both of which took place only weeks apart and a scant few miles within North London. Now, as I said, whilst many people do love this time of year, there are equally many who don't. It may bring back bad memories for some, or they may unavoidably associate it with other times gone by, because it's not always a time of cheer for everybody, is it? And of course, that darkness can always be there, just lurking. You'll hear one example of such darkness within the episode, and please don't think that the title is misleading or disrespectful in any way, I hope that the tale will become an explanatory one. The episode contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so as always on the show, please use your discretion whilst you listen, guys. With that in mind, for the final time this series, please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at a case for an episode I've entitled The Punk and the Predator. So I'll account the cases in a chronological order, and for the first account of the episode, we head back to the not-too-distant past of the night of Thursday, November the 16th, 2017, to the area of Muswell Hill in North London. Split between the London boroughs of Haringey and Barnet, it's an area we visited closely to on the show in the past. A Patreon episode, Death in Highgate Woods, takes place near to there. And famous folk to come from the area include founding members of the Kinks, David and Ray Davis, co-frontman of the Libertines, Carl Barat, fantastic band they were back in the day, and wave your hand itself while you got leather on, the late Alvin Stardust. More infamous residents of the area include, of course, Dennis Nilsson, who needs no introduction whatsoever, does he? And as a bit of a side note and an observation, my ex-wife is from nearby to there also. Though I'm not saying that she's up there with Nilsson, of course. I'll just leave that out there. Number 34A Hill Road, 
a mid-terrace house in the middle of a quiet suburban street in the area, was the home to one Catherine Burke, or Cathy Burke as she was better known, a 55-year-old retired civil servant and proud mother of one. Cathy was originally from the area of Salt Hill in the Irish city of Galway, and had moved to the four-bedroom house in the Muswell Hill area in the late 1990s, following cessation of her relationship with the father of her son, Niall. Although she'd never remarried, Cathy kept herself busy as a working mother and was outgoing with many friends in the local area. Described variously as a friendly real lady and a real character who was so funny, Cathy would always stop and pass the time of day with anybody. Widely liked and remembered for her flame-coloured hair and her infectious Irish humour. For several years, until she'd retired from a civil service role, she'd lived in the four-bedroom rented accommodation with Niall and her dog, until in 2016, Niall had gone to study at university, 70 miles away in Brighton. Although she missed her son, to combat the loneliness, Cathy still had her dog, and a core group of friends that she did lots with and kept in constant touch with. She especially enjoyed dog walking with a friend and her dogs on the nearby Muswell Hill playing fields, which was Cathy's daily routine and which she'd done as usual on Wednesday the 15th of November 2017. That afternoon, when Cathy had returned from her walk, she'd spoken to another friend, Eileen Crevens, at length on the telephone, and made arrangements to speak to her again the following day. But Eileen got no answer from the normally conscientious Cathy when she tried contacting her the next day, Thursday the 15th. Several calls and text messages went unanswered, and this lack of response was thought to be so unlike Cathy that Eileen began to worry. She tried contacting mutual friends, who also tried unsuccessfully to reach Cathy, and who in turn contacted some of Cathy's neighbours in Hill Road, where her next-door neighbour, 73-year-old Anna Nathan, told them that she'd heard Cathy's dog crying inside the property. By now, friends and neighbours were at the house, concerned that Cathy had taken ill, but repeated banging on the door prompted no answer. One of her friends fetched a ladder and scaled up to peer through the front window into Cathy's bedroom, thinking that she may be there, but her bed showed no signs of having been slept in. By now, fearing what may have happened, it was decided to contact police and ambulance services, and at 7.03pm that evening, shortly after being called, emergency services arrived at the property. Entry to the property was forced through the front door, and police and paramedics entered the house, but found no sign of Cathy in any of the downstairs rooms. She was upstairs in one of the back bedrooms. A paramedic discovered the disturbing sight of Cathy's body, naked, apart from a pair of odd socks, lying on a leopard print dressing gown underneath a pile of clothing with a pashmina scarf wrapped tightly around her neck and jaw, forming a rough gag. Her wrists had been tightly bound using two dressing gown cords, whilst a piece of white cloth tightly bound her ankles together and her neck, back and abdomen were heavily bloodstained from the several stab wounds that she'd received to these areas. As the scene was cordoned off and a murder investigation began, headed by Detective Chief Inspector Nicola Wall from the Homicide and Major Crime Command, 
Shocked friends and neighbours of Cathy struggled to take in the horror of what police had found, scarcely believing that something so awful had intruded upon the community and had happened to someone who was so widely regarded. The friend and neighbour, Anna Nathan, immediately lit a candle in her kitchen for a close friend as soon as she heard of her death, where it was to remain constantly lit for more than a year. Floral tributes began to appear placed in the hedgerow of number 34, and Cathy's neighbour, Julia Fanita, said, The police haven't told us anything, nothing at all. Everything is cloudy, and the only thing we can do is prevention. For us, it was shocking. She was a very friendly lady, and I feel sad because we talked over the fence. We both love gardening. She liked buying flowers, and now they're all gone. It's this lack of knowledge and having everything left to speculation that alludes to suspicion and fear, and horrific crimes like these aren't supposed to happen in your area, of course, are they? When things like this do, it scares people rigid, as was summed up by neighbour James McDermott, who said, the street is one of the quietest you'll get. I can't believe this could happen around here. We're all shocked. Everybody is in total shock and everyone's a bit nervous as well. Meanwhile, a post-mortem had revealed that Cathy had been killed almost 24 hours before she was found and cause of death was due to her having suffered four stab wounds, twice in the abdomen, once between the shoulder blades and once to the neck a wound that was inflicted when Cathy either lay already dead or dying. There were no defensive wounds found upon Cathy, indicating that she'd not struggled with a killer, but yet, despite the appearance of her body, she'd been forcibly stripped, bound and gagged, there was no evidence of any forced intercourse or any attempted sexual assault. There was no evidence of ransacking to the scene either, but Cathy's two mobile phones, including a Nokia Lumia model, were found to be missing from the house, as well as an Amazon Kindle tablet belonging to his son, Niall. House-to-house -house inquiries in the Hill Road area revealed no one who'd been seen acting suspiciously near to the property, and there was no sign of forced entry to the house. It was determined that under cover of darkness, sometime in the early evening, Cathy's killer had simply entered through the unlocked back door of number 34, which was accessed through a walkway off Hill Road in between numbers 36 and 38. He'd brutally murdered Cathy in an apparent sex crime, and taking only a token haul, had left the scene unspotted and unchallenged. Analysis of telephone masts within the area did show that Cathy's Nokia Lumia phone had activated at about 7.50pm the previous evening within the area of Frying Barnet, just over a mile away northbound from the murder scene, but had quickly been turned off. And there, the trail ran cold. For a number of weeks, anyway. Skip forward now to almost six weeks later, to Christmas Eve, and to the London area of Camden Town. The pubs at Camden were chock-a-busy with revellers and had been most of that day, and an especially busy one was the World's End pub, a popular rock pub located on the intersection of Camden High Street and Greenland Road. Adjacent to the pub, but actually located within its basement, is a club called Underworld, a thriving venue which hosts hard rock and indie music acts from all over the world. Now it's loved by many and it attracts many loyal clientele, 
and one of these was 22-year-old Juliana Tudos, who worked as a member of the bar staff at the World's End pub. Born in Moldova, Juliana had left there when her mother, Alina, had split from her birth father and had married a Cypriot national named Costas Vaslu. They'd moved to the Cyprus capital of Larnaca, where Juliana had grown up happily, having a close relationship with her mother and stepfather and loving her two younger half-brothers that were to follow, Pavlos and Pantelis. An intelligent, fun-loving girl, Juliana had a love of rock music and anime, plus a fierce independence and a fearless streak that led to her early on earning her own money and not relying on pocket money or handouts from her folks. She began working at a Larnaca beach bar aged just 17 and saved up enough money to make a lifelong dream of hers happen. For from a young age, Juliana had expressed a desire to visit the UK, London in particular. It was a place that she'd become enchanted with. In 2013, aged just 18, she'd packed her bags, having worked enough to afford her air ticket and to fund a stay, and with the blessing of her proud parents, set off to further her English studies in the city that she'd always longed to visit. When she arrived over in the UK, Juliana found accommodation in a house share at number 94 Endymion Road in the upper Tollington Park area of Haringey and quickly got herself a job on a stall in the world-famous Camden Market, selling anime t-shirts to fund her studies. She also quickly became well-liked by her housemates, who came to simply know her as Julie, and with her love of music, she soon became introduced to Underworld. Here she saw several live acts and bands, getting heavily into the Camden punk scene and adapting the look that went with it, ever-changing hair colours, piercings, tattoos aplenty, you know what I mean, I'm sure. Now there are several pictures of Julie, that's how I'll refer to her from now on throughout the episode, available through an online search that I found whilst I was researching the finale, and all of these show a happy-looking, confident, highly attractive young woman who, like who knows how many other people, enjoys a selfie. But through all of these, unlike some people who post stuff like this, and I'm sure you know what I mean when I say this, you never get an impression of someone who's just clamouring attention here. I was left more with the impression of someone who was just eager to share a life that she was clearly loving and an identity she was finding. There are many pictures of her enjoying happy times with friends that she'd made doing so, and Julie's description on the bio on her Facebook page is as follows. Miss Sass, sarcasm and profanity, cynicism, geek, lone wolf, Camden punk. Do you see what I mean about an identity? Also according to her Facebook page, it was in April 2017 that Julie began working as bar staff at the World's End pub, which she must have been overjoyed at. Indeed, she describes herself as a happy slave there, and it was and as it was somewhere that she was very familiar with due to her many nights out there at Underworld, she slotted into the staff there like a hand into a glove, already knowing several of them well, as many of the staff were also musicians who played in several of the bands to have appeared at Underworld. The popular girl soon became beloved by her colleagues and regulars to the venue, and life was fantastic for her. Although she didn't get back home to Cyprus to visit too often, she'd speak to her family back home as much as she could, the magic of FaceTime and Skype being a wonderful thing now, isn't it? 
and tried as often as possible to get over for visits or over holidays, including at Christmas time. But for Christmas 2017, Julie wasn't heading over to Cyprus to visit her family. As she was working in the World's End pub over the busy Christmas period, including an afternoon shift on Christmas Eve and again on Boxing Day, Julie had instead been invited with others to spend Christmas Day at the home of a close friend of theirs, Laszlo Juddit, who lived in the North London borough of Enfield, an offer which Julie had happily accepted. Although her family back home in Cyprus would have loved to have her back there over the holidays, when mother and daughter spoke on the 23rd of December, Alina told Julie that she understood her excitement about spending Christmas with her friends and instead promised to get the family to call her on Christmas Day to wish her a Merry Christmas. Sadly, there was to be no Merry Christmas that year for anybody who knew Julie, her friends and especially not for her family. That telephone call was to be the last time that Alina Vaslu was to ever speak to her beloved daughter. On Christmas Eve, Julie had worked the busy afternoon shift at the World's End and had finished at 5pm, ready to start at Christmas celebrations. Wishing the oncoming staff a Merry Christmas, Julie had left and gone to meet her friends at a nearby Camden pub, The Good Mixer, of note, a former regular haunt of troubled singer Amy Winehouse, and I do believe apparently there's a statue of her erected nearby. Meeting up with her friends, the crowd spent some time having a few festive drinks, where Julie herself had just a pint and a half of Guinness before she told them that she was heading home to change and would meet back up with them later that evening at Laszlo's flat. Just after 8pm then, the excited Julie caught a bus heading to the Finsbury Park area, expecting to be back with her friends only a couple of hours later. But the evening wore on and there was no sign of Julie returning. Her friends texted her, no answer. They tried calling her, no answer. They messaged mutual friends, but nobody had seen her. And they checked out her online presence, but there was nothing since she'd left them at 8pm. Concerned over this, festive celebrations gave way to increasing worry at behaviour so out of character for Julie. And by the following morning, Laszlo was concerned enough to post the following Facebook status, complete with pictures of herself and Julie. Juliana Lilith Tudos has gone missing on the 24th of December, 8pm. Latest time of any kind of interaction we know about was with me, saying that she was going to come back to my place to spend Christmas together. She hasn't been online, her phone is off and she's not at home. Our friend at the police said we have to wait 72 hours to report it. Now I wouldn't wait 72 hours to report something so worrying, and neither did Laszlo. A few hours later, she posted the following update. Finished with the police, normally for adults the risk is low, but they put this one in medium risk since it's a highly unusual behaviour. They were then left with an agonising wait, but feeling that they needed to do something, flyers were made and printed up and handed out around the Camden area. The friends even contacted the landlord of 94 and Dimion Road, who Julie came around and forced the locked bedroom door to Julie's room, thinking it unlikely, but perhaps Julie had spur of the moment upped and decided to head off somewhere. Her passport, clothes and belongings were all still in her room.
By the time Boxing Day arrived, when Julie had been expected back to work at the world's end, and of course hadn't shown up, her family back in Cyprus had already been notified and were making arrangements to come over to the UK. Her concerned friends were still making their own online appeals, and by now critical of police who were only classing Julie's disappearance as medium risk, had decided to make their own searches. Plotting the route that they knew Julie usually took home, they began retracing her steps. Now Julie's regular bus home from work was no more than a 30 minute journey, but as other transport that was more direct often took much longer, she'd take the quickest bus that dropped her off only a short distance from Upper Tollington Park, where she would then usually make a short 10 to 15 minute shortcut home on foot through Finsbury Park itself. It was here that they decided to search. No easy feat because Finsbury Park is a fair size. Adapting common sense and taking the most direct, quickest route, they walked the route from where Julie would have gotten off her bus to her home, which would have taken her on one of the many public paths through the park, past its boating lake and through the entrance to the park on Endymion Road, just a hundred yards or so from her home. Then they began to work backwards from here. Now Finsbury Park, as well as being vast, is also a busy one. Aside from the popular trails through it and its boating lake, it boasts several sporting facilities within it too. There were football pitches, an athletic stadium, and uniquely, even an American football pitch and diamonds where softball and baseball are played. The amateur London Mets youth team play their games here. The baseball diamonds are located within the northeastern corner of the park, an area skirted by Endymion Road and Green Lanes, and by the afternoon of 27th of December, the search party had reached this area. Now there's a narrow river that runs across this part of the park with a path skirting it, and midway along the path is an abandoned cricket pavilion, long since giving way to hosting test matches and instead now a haven for vandals and substance users. Part of the pavilion, it's cleared now this part, although as late as March 2019 the pavilion itself remained, but part of it had at one time been set on fire and stood left as a blackened shell. Just before 4.30pm that afternoon, it was in here that the search for Julie came to a tragic end. One of her friends who'd been out searching for her made the horrifying discovery of Julie's body lying underneath some items of discarded clothing and pieces of blackened wood. Naked, she was heavily bloodstained to her neck, her wrists and had clear wounds to her abdomen and chest with a length of denim material wound around her neck. At some point she'd been severely beaten about the head, her wrists had been bound with white plastic cable ties pieces of which had been cut off and discarded near to the body, and a killer had then grotesquely mutilated her. Paramedics and police called to the scene later told how Julie's killer appeared to have either attempted to carve the letter M into her chest, or possibly even the Batman logo. Now what on earth do you say to that? Because there are no words really, are there? The real stuff of nightmares, that, isn't it? how utterly horrific. As the northeast area of Finsbury Park was sealed off and a crime scene established, Julie's body was photographed in situ 
and then removed to Haringey Mortuary where a post-mortem examination was performed. This revealed the primary cause of Julie's death to be a stab wound to the abdomen alongside blunt force trauma to the head. She'd also been stripped naked and bound with white cable ties, but there was no evidence of rape or of any recent sexual activity. Julie was also found to have suffered deep incised wounds to her neck, wrists and chest, from which glass fragments were recovered, suggesting that they were likely to have been caused by a broken bottle. One of these had been that deliberate attempt to carve either a letter M or the Batman symbol into Julie's chest, exposing her chest cavity. A murder investigation, led by Detective Chief Inspector Nicola Wall, was immediately launched and as Julie's family was notified of the tragic find, her equally shattered friends were spoken to and a detailed examination of her life made to see if there was any possible suspect or motive for her murder. But this revealed absolutely nothing. Julie wasn't involved in anything unlawful or illicit. She had no boyfriend, so this wasn't a lover's quarrel that had gotten way out of hand. And she wasn't found to have anyone who even disliked her, let alone to want her dead so horrifically. Indeed, the amount of online and floral tributes left at the scene that appeared following the discovery of Julie's body reflected just how loved and highly thought of she'd been. There are many publicised tributes to her available from her many friends, but I chose to include this one in part in the narrative from her housemate Rosie. My dear Julie, my beautiful flatmate, our lives won't be the same without you. My heart is burning, justice will never be served enough. Your memory will live on, so young, so beautiful, taken from us far too early. I'll miss you every day, I'll miss our cups of tea, and sharing our cheese and pickle sandwiches, and your cackle laugh that would be funnier than the joke. Now I always find tributes such as this strike a chord a bit more with me, because they describe something so unique to that particular person, don't they? Although I'm not saying that the sentiment is any less at all, to me... An anecdotal tribute is always a bit more poignant than a simple rest in peace. And the example I gave just a moment ago is just one of several. This was a girl that had truly been loved by her friends and family. So she hadn't been deliberately targeted. It seemed that Julie had fallen into the hands of a stranger, a predator, who had accosted her on her way home through the park. As is standard in a murder investigation, CCTV around the Finsbury Park area was checked from the Christmas Eve period onwards alongside CCTV on all evening buses that ran from Camden along the A503 to where it adjoined with the Seven Sisters Road, the service that Julie habitually used. Sure enough, when CCTV from the bus travelling the projected route home at the time Julie had caught it was checked, she was identified as a passenger from the clothing that she was described as wearing when she was last seen. Black and white Vans trainers, light-coloured jeans, a red and black hooded top bearing the logo of US punk band Agnostic Front and carrying a canvas bag that sported the logo Fighting Against Animal Testing on it. She was spotted getting off the bus on the Seven Sisters Road where shortly after 8.33pm she was recorded by CCTV walking into the entrance of Finsbury Park at the intersection of the Seven Sisters Road and Green Lanes. 
From here, it was roughly a 13-minute walk on foot through the park to Endymion Road, a route that Julie was familiar with, yet reportedly would not do in the darkness. Yet despite the poor lighting within the area, it was one that she appeared on CCTV to take, her excitement to get back to her friends overriding her natural caution. Somewhere in that 13-minute window, Julie met her killer. On the 28th of December, DCI Wall made the following appeal. Juliana's body was discovered in an outbuilding next to a sports pitch. We believe that she may have been attacked on Saturday, December the 24th, Christmas Eve, but we want to hear from anyone who saw anything suspicious in that part of Finsbury Park over the Christmas period. We are still trying to piece together a timeline of events and are pursuing a number of lines of inquiry as regards to a motive. Our inquiries from CCTV footage have now ascertained that Juliana was seen on the periphery of the park on Christmas Eve shortly after 2020 hours. We want to hear from anyone who saw, had contact with or heard from Juliana after this time. We'd also like to hear from anybody who saw anything suspicious within the park over the Christmas period. The location where Julie's body had been found revealed few clues. The killer had removed items of her property from the scene, including her mobile phone, her bag and several items of her clothing. Various items of clothing were found scattered around the Finsbury Park area, however, and were marked by senior crime officers, although confirmation as to whether any of these were identified as Julie's can't be ascertained. As with research in many cases such as this, multiple sources sometimes provide ambiguity about details such as these, and while sources are used for research do all claim that Julie's body was found hidden underneath items of clothing, I'd be inclined to think it was her own clothing that she was found under. But the area of Finsbury Park itself where she had been found did provide a possible line of inquiry for police. An orange and dark grey dome tent was found just a hundred yards away from the spot where Julie's body lay, pitched between tall trees on the New River Path which runs through the northeast corner of the park. The tent was abandoned but had contained several items, a purple suitcase, articles of clothing, rubbish and other general flotsam, and it gave way to police theory. Had Julie been killed by a homeless person living nearby who was attempting to mug her? It was certainly a valid theory. As with other parks, Finsbury Park is used constantly by many homeless people and one that, according to several residents, has developed an unsavoury reputation as a result. Householder John Savage, who lives in the Finsbury Park area, said, There are quite a few homeless people in the park. There's always a couple dotted around, no matter the weather. They put up tents near trees. They also sleep rough under Finsbury Park Bridge and Stroud Green Bridge near the station. They even set up bedrooms with furniture and mattresses. It got so bad earlier in the year, they all had to be moved on from under the bridge by the council. Another resident living nearby, Serena Mendez, echoed this, saying, I walk here a lot with my children and it can be very dangerous at night. There's not much light on the footpaths, especially down towards the old cricket pavilion. It's very frightening to see all the police activity now. 
But this police activity, a thorough examination of the tent and its contents, the area of Finsbury Park where Julie was found, plus an underwater search of the adjacent New River, failed to discover any of Julie's belongings discarded nearby or a disposed of murder weapon. The tent and the suitcase were subsequently to be ruled out of the inquiry. But this isn't to say that police didn't rapidly have a breakthrough, however. An analysis of Julie's bank account activity revealed that her pin and bank card had been used to make a cash withdrawal of £100 from an ATM machine located on London's Tottenham Court Road, some four miles away across the city from Finsbury Park at about 10.30pm on the evening of Christmas Eve, some two hours after CCTV had last caught Julie entering the park. CCTV was found observing the terminal that the withdrawal was traced to and an analysis of the footage from the time frame Julie's account was activated revealed that it wasn't the slightly built 5 foot 1 young woman withdrawing her own money from her account as was suspected but a stockily built Afro-Caribbean male in his late 20s to early 30s. Police now had a face and a time frame of Julie's likely killer. Her cash card and PIN number were not found to have been used since this transaction, but were still missing, along with her white canvas bag, purse, mobile phone and other belongings. Analysis of cellular phone activity around the Tottenham Court area revealed that Julie's mobile phone had pinged off one of the masts near here shortly after the cash withdrawal and had then again, about 30 minutes later, off another mast, this time placing it in the North London area of Frying Barnet. It had not activated since. Now with an area to concentrate a search for the suspect within, and very good CCTV evidence of him, complete with his clothing, a painstaking trawl of CCTV and phone mast data covering the area between the location of the cash withdrawal and the Frying Barnet area was made. I'm sure you can appreciate what a task that was. But it bloody paid off. How exactly he was positively identified is not reported, whether it was painstaking analysis of cell phone activity against suspects on files strongly matching the stills police had from CCTV of Julie's likely killer, or whether it was eyewitness identification, who knows. But by New Year's Day... Inquiries had led police to the doorstep of 31-year-old Kasim Lewis, an unemployed habitual criminal and drug user with a long list of convictions and who was at the time on the sex offenders register for a number of offences if he didn't already sound delightful enough. I say doorstep because Lewis was at the time of no official fixed abode although police did learn on good authority that he was living in a squalid flat above a disused Greek restaurant in the North London area of Southgate, a premises described by one local shop owner as a sort of halfway house with a high turnover of tenants. Lewis wasn't found here when police arrived, however, but he was eventually traced to an address in the East London area of Dalston belonging to his on-off boyfriend, where at 1.30pm on the afternoon of New Year's Day 2018, Kasim Lewis was arrested on suspicion of the murder of Juliana Tudos. Following his caution, when informed that he was being arrested on suspicion of her murder, Lewis told an officer, 
What do you want me to say? When told in response by the officer that that was a matter for him to decide, Lewis replied, Yeah, I did it. As Lewis was then taken to a police station in south-east London, police then sealed off both the address in Dalston where he'd been arrested and the flat above the disused restaurant in Southgate for search and forensic examination. If his admitting to the murder wasn't enough, a number of items were found during the searches of the Southgate property that further stacked the evidence against Lewis, including a number of white plastic cable ties found floating in the sink in the Southgate property, which were identical to those that had been used to bind Julie and that had been left at the scene of her murder. There was also a knife found hidden in a fridge in the kitchen that examination would later show matched in dimension the fatal wound to Julie's abdomen, but most telling of all, a muddied and blood-stained pair of dark men's jeans were found here. When the blood staining on these jeans was tested, examiners managed to extract the DNA profiles of two people from the garment, Cassim Lewis and Juliana Tudos. Meanwhile, whilst all this was being discovered, Lewis had confessed in full to Julie's murder. He told police how he'd spent the afternoon of Christmas Eve at his boyfriend's Dalston flat, drinking, using cannabis and snorting cocaine, following which a row had erupted between the two. Off his face on drink and drugs, Lewis had stormed out of the flat as a result and had roamed around for a while, before he claimed at about 8pm he'd found himself in the vicinity of Finsbury Park, an area that he occasionally used for random sexual encounters with men. It was here that he realised he'd left his wallet behind in Dalston and had decided to mug someone, anyone, he claimed, for money to get back. Shortly after this, he saw and intercepted a lone female walking along the New River Path, Juliana Tudos. He then told how he'd loomed out of the darkness and had forced the terrified girl at knife point to an abandoned shack that he was familiar with in the park, a burned-out shed adjacent to a cricket pavilion. Here, he admitted restraining her with cable ties that he claimed he'd found within the shack, then stealing her bag and stabbing her. Any other wounds to Julie, he claimed, were inflicted in the struggle to obtain her pin number before he'd fled. He'd made his way some distance from the Finsbury Park area, disposing of her bag and its contents on the way, before he had then used a cash card to withdraw money from a terminal in Tottenham Court Road. He'd afterwards returned to his dwelling in Southgate. Except that this is simply a glossed over version of the actual events which Lewis had told police because he couldn't refute evidence that they'd obtained Julie's DNA on a pair of jeans with his own DNA profile on and CCTV and documented evidence of Julie's bank activity that identified him at that particular terminal at the time her card was being used. Perhaps he'd confessed from the off knowing that he'd likely be convicted upon this evidence and he hoped that police would be satisfied with just his admittance, charge him, and examine no further. Well, not a chance. Lewis had conveniently not mentioned that he'd deliberately gone out armed with cable ties and a knife, he hadn't mentioned or offered any explanation for why Julie's clothing had been removed, and the mutilation to her wrists, neck and chest was much more severe than would occur during any struggle. 
Some of the wounds inflicted on Julie were down to the bone, and further, they hadn't been caused by a blade, but rather by a broken bottle, proved by the fragments of glass found embedded in them. And of course, the Batman symbol doesn't become carved into someone's chest by accident, does it? Far from being an opportune mugger, police considered that Lewis was more of a dangerous sexual predator who deliberately set out to enact out some sexual fueled fantasy, the end game of which would be murder. The reason? Well, aside from the details of the crime he'd left out, an analysis of his mobile phone was also an eye-opener and gave police more evidence, albeit circumstantial, that Lewis had been enacting some depraved sexual fantasy out when he'd killed Julie. Lewis's phone internet search history showed he was a heavy user of pornography, of which he tended to favour that that bordered on the extreme and disturbing. Over the previous few months, his search history showed he'd searched for and accessed several extreme porn videos, which he then saved to the memory of his phone. I say extreme because I'm not sure how to really class them or the correct term for them. Coercion, perhaps, or enacted rape. But you get the idea, something equally vile like that. These included titles such as Stepsisters Court and another entitled Bad Teens Punished, which was described as showing, in part, a young woman being chased into an alleyway by a man who says to another, she ain't getting away again. The woman says, please don't hurt me, I'll do anything. To which the man replies, they all say that, before restraining her wrists with white cable ties and forcing her into sex. That's just an example of one of these found upon his phone, and I wouldn't want to try and expand upon it. I'm sure you get the idea. Absolutely vile. So when you put the description from this saved video together with the several saved images of women with their throats slit that were also found on Lewis's phone, and then you think of the circumstances of Julie's death, it's not a massive jump really, is it? It boggles the mind what some people are into, doesn't it? Chilling and just vile is the word, only word I can think of. We shall come back to the phone and its contents a bit later on also. On Wednesday the 3rd of January 2018, Cassim Lewis appeared at Wimbledon Magistrates Court following being charged the previous day with the murder of Juliana Tudos. In a hearing that lasted no more than a minute and a half, Lewis, dressed in grey prison-issue sweatshirt and bottoms, spoke only to confirm his name, his date of birth, his address and his nationality. He was remanded in custody awaiting further appearances before magistrates for a full committal hearing, following which he was then remanded to Wandsworth Prison. Also the previous day, following Lewis's confession, the officer who'd been leading the hunt for Julie's killer, Detective Chief Inspector Nicola Wall, had looked at the circumstances of Julie's death against another, as yet unsolved case that she was also the SIO of, the murder in November 2017 of Kathy Burke, just over three miles away. Two women, both restrained at the wrists, both with stab wounds, both stripped naked, both covered with items of clothing, four miles and six weeks apart. It could sound like the plot of some TV drama, couldn't it? 
and in the latter case, a self-confessed killer in custody. But was he by then a double killer? Aside from the similarities of how each victim had been found, Lewis lived very close to the scene of Cathy's murder, and it was an area he defended in before, having committed no less than nine known residential burglaries in the Muswell Hill area. On the 2nd of January then, before appearing before magistrates to be charged with Julie's murder, Lewis was arrested by the team investigating Cathy's murder and was interviewed about his movements on the night of November the 15th the previous year. However, whereas Lewis had admitted killing Julie, kind of had to, faced with the evidence, he was uncooperative here, adapting a no-comment stance when interviewed by detectives about Cathy's murder. He was released from arrest pending investigation following this interview, but with each of his interrogators now convinced that Cathy's killer was already in custody, but with no direct evidence at the time to be able to charge Lewis with a second murder, the investigating team were forced to gather more evidence, but this time with a firm suspect in mind. A suspect they believed had gone on to kill again just six weeks later. With a self-confessed killer on remand awaiting sentencing, Julie's body was sent back home to Cyprus early in 2018, her funeral expenses already taken care of by her many friends and even people who'd just been touched by her tragic story. See, while some people are just hit with shock and they can only just grieve, others do as well, but they can immediately also think practically yet compassionately and one of her friend's thoughts had gone straight to Julie's family. When news of her body being discovered reached Julie's friend, Christina Romasic, Christina was immediately forward-thinking and compassionate to have started a crowdfunding page for Julie's family to help them cover her funeral expenses. Putting a target amount of £4,000 on this, Christina wrote on the GoFundMe page, We are fundraising for Julie Tudos. 22-year-old bartender from World's End Pub in Camden Town who was brutally murdered on Christmas Eve in Finsbury Park in London on her way home from work. We would like to help her family to cover funeral expenses in this difficult time for them. This is what we can do for Julie. This total of £4,000 had been surpassed within the first 12 hours and within four days had risen to almost £18,000 in donations from more than a 1,000 people. Many of these were members of Julie's adopted Camden family, whilst others were complete strangers just horrified and touched by Julie's tragic death. Following covering her funeral expenses, Julie's family donated the remainder of the GoFundMe appeal to various charities of their choosing, although perhaps Julie's mother did use one small part of this for her own tribute to her daughter, however. Shortly after the conclusion of Lewis's trial, Alina told Real People magazine how she was planning to have a tattoo in tribute to Julie. She said, I always told her off for having all these tattoos, and now I'm going to have one myself. I'm going to have a lion etched on my arm, because Julie loved cats, and to me she was like a lion, so brave and strong. I think this is the perfect way she would want me to remember her. Julie's Camden family, meanwhile, 
remembered her at a tribute night in her memory held at the Underworld Club that she loved so much on Sunday the 4th of March 2018, with flyers advertising the event containing a striking, haunting image of Julie's eyes. The flyers on the show's Instagram page for you to see. Several of Julie's favourite punk and rock bands, including Knuckle Dust, Idle Hands, Pints, Last Orders and Who Cares, all appeared at the show, waiving their performance fees to perform on the sold-out night. After the gig, friends of Julie's recorded an emotional video for her family, giving them a glimpse into the life that she'd loved so much, and each individually paying tribute to Julie, telling them their memories of her and what she meant to them. It was somebody special that had been lost. This really was. Kasim Lewis appeared at court number one of the Old Bailey via video link from Belmarsh Prison on the 17th of May 2018, where he pleaded guilty to the murder of Juliana Tudos on December 24th of the previous year. Attending the court that day were members of Julie's family, her mother and stepfather, plus members of her beloved Camden family, all waiting to see the beast that had so cruelly taken the life of the girl that each held so beloved. Dressed in the same prison-issued grey sweatshirt he'd appeared in previously, Lewis said nothing as prosecuting counsel Crispin Aylert QC, in his opening address, told the court, Juliana was struck over the head, most likely with a bottle. She was also stabbed with a broken bottle in the neck, on her abdomen and on her wrists, again with a broken bottle. Although there is no evidence that Juliana was actually sexually assaulted, the prosecution alleged that this was a sexually motivated and sadistic attack. The court then heard how on Christmas Eve 2017, 22-year-old Julie had worked a 10am to 5pm shift in the World's End pub before leaving to join friends for a drink nearby ahead of joining the same friends at their flat in Enfield to spend Christmas with them. Telling them she was heading home to Upper Tollington Park to change clothes before returning, Julie then caught a bus from Camden to Seven Sisters Road, intending to make a shortcut home through the darkened Finsbury Park. She was caught on CCTV here at 8.33pm, where she was spotted at the entrance to the park after she'd gotten off the bus. Mr Aylert said, Juliana was never to make it out of the park. After Julie failed to arrive at the home of her friends that evening, Laszlo Judith and her partner, Pepper Schumariva, they tried calling and messaging Julie constantly, but with no response. With no response again into Christmas Day, they posted up online appeals about her, distributed made-up flyers around the Camden area, and eventually reported Julie as a missing person to police in the Enfield division. By Boxing Day, unsatisfied with police response, they'd begun planning to retrace her steps and search for her for themselves, which began in earnest the next day in Finsbury Park. It was during this search that these caring, concerned friends of tragic Julie discovered her body inside a burnt-out shed next to a disused cricket pavilion. Mr Aylert described to the jury how Julie was found lying on her back with clothing and pieces of wood laid on top of her and detailed to them the horrific injuries she'd received. Both wrists cut deep enough to have exposed bone, puncture wounds and incisions that revealed her chest cavity 
and a length of denim material wrapped around her neck, which also had horrific wounds, all thought to have been caused with a broken bottle. The wound that killed her to her abdomen had been inflicted with a knife, and this had not been caused in a frenzy, it had been a sustained and sadistic attack in which Julie had been restrained and deliberately mutilated. To example this, Mr. Aylott said, After the paramedics had confirmed that Juliana was dead, a police officer went back inside the shed. He has described the incised injury to the centre of Juliana's chest as looking like either the logo for the character Batman or else the letter M. A number of white cable ties, some of which appeared to have been connected before being cut, were also found alongside Juliana's body. Poor, poor girl. I struggle to imagine something so evil. I really do. The court then heard impact statements from people who were close to Julie concerning her life and how her death had affected them. They had plenty to choose from, but two were read out. One from Julie's parents, Alina and Costas, and another from a close friend of Julie's, Agnesha Jackman. Hers read as follows. She was a friend to so many and a part of so many people's lives. She had an eternal love for music. We knew something was wrong. She would never cancel plans without letting someone know, especially on Christmas Eve. Here, we are the only family in the UK she had. A piece of our lives died with Julie that night. Every single one of our lives has changed for the worst. I worry about being out on my own at night. The pain I feel makes me feel self-destructive. I want to know why. Why did he do this to my beautiful friend? It's unimaginable what she went through that night. The fear and the idea that she was scared and felt pain, it haunts us all. We just hope she didn't suffer. He's taken one life and destroyed many others. I wish I could turn back the clock. Dear Julie, we love you very much and we will never forget who you were. Elena and Costas's, meanwhile, read as follows. As parents, we have lost our beloved daughter. Our two sons have lost their sister. Relatives and friends have lost their dearest Juliana. She was murdered in the most repelling and inhuman way, a disgrace to the human race. As a youngster, Juliana was full of energy and had many goals in her life. She never caused any trouble at school or at home. She lived with us in Cyprus from the age of three. She was loved and cherished by all her family, relatives and friends in Cyprus, and we were living a quiet and happy family life. When she got older, her goal, like many other people her age, was to study in the UK. We supported her when she achieved this dream and moved to the UK, although we were sorry to see her go. She studied hard and worked hard to help fund her living costs in the UK. She was a shining example to many other young people who were planning a similar path. We felt proud of her as the diploma from a UK university would help her get a good job. As parents, our dream was for Juliana to get back to Cyprus after her graduation, get a job, get married and have children, our grandchildren. All of these now are gone. As a family, we will never get through this. The only thing that gives us strength is that Juliana is now safe in God's hands. What happened to her was not an accident or an illness, she was murdered. 
All of her dreams have been lost. This gives us great sadness. Her mother, her two brothers and I, are all very proud and honoured to have known Juliana, a beautiful daughter and sister. Then the court heard how police had traced Lewis, how he'd been identified from the CCTV coverage of him using the cash point to make a withdrawal from Julie's account, and how he'd been traced to an address in Dalston and arrested on New Year's Day, following which he'd confessed freely to Julie's murder. They heard of the evidence discovered at his squalid flat, the knife in the fridge, the similar cable ties found in the sink, and the muddy jeans that were, of course, ultimately found to have traces of Julie's blood upon them. Jeremy Dine QC, defending, said Lewis had instructed his legal team to express remorse on his behalf. He told the jury that, in mitigation, although Lewis's actions were barbaric and irrational beyond comprehension, he drew attention to the fact that there was no evidence of any sexual assault, even though Julie had been stripped and found naked and that the sadistic injuries were inflicted only after she was knocked unconscious. Like that makes any of this less horrific, right? What an absolute load of shit. Mr. Dine added, His mind was bedeviled by a concoction of drink and drugs. He was in a low mood. He was severely prone to depression and vulnerable to committing acts of robbery in order to finance drugs habit. His thought processes were devastated by the consumption of drugs. But the prosecution simply explained to the jury that they weren't so devastated that Lewis hadn't tried to lay a false trail away from him. Apart from the disturbing images and hideous porn found on Lewis's phone when it was seized and examined following his arrest that were also revealed to the jury, a text message was found that Lewis had sent to one of his contacts on the 28th of December. It read, How's everything today and have you watched the news? A woman's body was found yesterday. What's going on? This text message, the prosecution claimed, was a deliberate attempt to steer suspicion away from himself should he be arrested, to distance himself and yet it was negated because Lewis confessed quite freely and in full to the murder upon his arrest. Sentencing Lewis to life imprisonment with a minimum 29-year tariff to be served, Mr Justice Richard Marks QC told him, This is a killing that demonstrated the most appalling brutality. It was horrendous and barbaric. Whether sadistic is open to argument, but the degree of violence in it is a significantly aggravating factor. This slightly built young woman was alone in a park at night and was as such vulnerable in the extreme. She must have died a terrible death. What you did to her was wicked beyond belief. Lewis said nothing to this and the video link was then shut down for him to begin his life sentence. Shortly afterwards, he was transferred from Belmarsh to Monster Mansion itself, Wakefield Prison in West Yorkshire. Following the verdict, the court could then hear of Lewis's appalling criminal past and how he had some 11 convictions against him for a total of 21 offences, including vehicle crime, burglary, attempted theft, handling stolen goods and sexual assault. At the time of Julie's murder, 
he was signing the sex offenders register. 31-year-old Lewis had come to the UK aged 9 in 1995 from the Caribbean island of Montserrat, just one of half of the population who had left the island following the Soufria Hills volcano eruption the same year, which caused mass devastation that remains to this day. Settling in North London, Lewis had an appalling upbringing and spent several periods in the care system, where as a teenager, he also discovered his bisexuality. In 2002, aged just 15, he'd begun his criminal career after he was sentenced to 18 months detention in a young offenders institution for car theft. From this, he graduated to burglary and theft to fund the drug addiction he'd also by that time developed. And by 2003, as a result of sharing needles with other users or his own unprotected promiscuity, Lewis was diagnosed as being HIV positive. His entry onto the sex offenders register stemmed from an offence in 2005 where he'd boarded a bus and sitting behind a woman passenger had prodded a bottom through a gap in the seat. When she turned around to remonstrate with him about this, she witnessed him performing a sex act in front of her. In September 2005, Lewis was convicted at Harrow Crown Court of sexual assault and exposure and subsequently jailed for two years for these offences consequently being placed on the sex offenders register. Convictions for possession of a knife and failure to surrender followed, complete with a further eight months in jail for failing to comply with sex offender notification requirements and a community order for the same in 2011, receiving no less than five of these. Then in 2013, Lewis was convicted at Wood Green Crown Court for burglary of a dwelling and received a two-and-a-half-year prison sentence, but being released after serving less than half of this. In no way rehabilitated, and more dangerous than ever. Following his conviction, Detective Chief Inspector Nicola Wall, the officer who'd led the hunt for Lewis, told the assembled press, Juliana was killed as she walked through Finsbury Park on her way to spend Christmas with her friends. Tragically, her journey brought her into contact with Cassim Lewis, who took her life in a shockingly violent manner. I have no doubt that women in London are safer for the fact that Lewis is behind bars. My thoughts are today with Juliana's family and her loyal friends who searched for her over Christmas last year. Julie's mother Alina and stepfather Costas, also speaking to the assembled press, gave the following statement on behalf of the Vassalou family. Costas said, She was usually very sensible and didn't take risks. Normally she wouldn't have taken a shortcut through the park in darkness, but it was Christmas Eve and she was excited and keen to celebrate with her friends. We wish now that she took her time and didn't rush, but we can't change time. If it wasn't us going through this heartbreak, it would be another family, because that man meant to kill someone that day. We don't hate Julie's killer because unlike him we don't have a lust for blood. We pity him if anything but he deserves to be in jail for such a long time to protect other innocent members of the public. What he did was an inhuman act. It's unthinkable that someone could plan something so horrific and go ahead with it. He faced justice in the court but he still has to face the ultimate justice before almighty God. We dreamed that one day Julie would come back home to Cyprus, start a family and that we would have grandchildren. 
but he's cruelly snatched that away from us. We prefer not to dwell on him, but to think about the happiness that Julie gave us. She was the most perfect daughter, sister and friend. I said in court that the only thing that gives us strength is that she's now safe in God's hands, and I mean that she will live in paradise for eternity. Alina added, Nobody is born evil. We all come into this world innocent, and the circumstances of his life have made him like he is. But that doesn't excuse in any way what he did. I always said that Julie was my gift from God because she was so beautiful and perfect, and he's taken her away from us. That is something our family will never get over. We take a stroll down to the beach or walk past the juice bar she worked in during the school holidays. It gives me that connection to her. It's like I can feel her with me in these places which gave her such joy as a child. Every night I gaze up to the night sky and see Julie as a star shining down on us all and keeping our family safe. What an absolutely amazing dignified family. Eh? Absolutely heartbreaking that, isn't it? They were then left to try and rebuild their lives following the loss of their beloved daughter. And with Lewis now tucked away serving life, police investigating the as still unsolved murder of Kathy Burke now set about searching for evidence to link Lewis with the crime, convinced he was a double killer that needed to face justice once again. To this extent, they first re-examined the evidence that had been seized upon the search of his home following his arrest for Julie's murder, and once again, the internet search history on Lewis's mobile phone proved eye-opening. In the days preceding Kathy's murder, Lewis had searched for such terms as rough granny sex, and was found just hours before Kathy was murdered to have visited a webpage entitled Skinny Granny Loves a Good Rough Fucking from Her Black Lover. Now I apologise for how graphic that description was, but it's important that it's known exactly where Lewis's head was back in November 2017, because that site is quite specific, isn't it? And although circumstantial, because not everyone into things like this is a sex-crazed killer, of course, like the porn videos that Lewis had accessed in the days leading up to Julie's murder, it's very suggestive when it's compared and contrasted with the victimology in the crime scene from just hours later, isn't it? But the first solid evidence to tie him to Kathy's murder again came from Lewis's clothing. A minute bloodstain found on a pair of trousers that had been recovered at the time of his arrest was tested and proved a 1 in 1 billion chance that it came from anyone other than Catherine Burke. So it's a good solid start, but this could only prove that at the most, Lewis had been in her flat at some point. More was needed, so in May 2018, a search warrant was executed at the Dalston flat belonging to Lewis's on-off boyfriend, where Lewis had originally been arrested back in January of that year. As a result of this search, several items were taken away for examination. There were further articles of clothing, paperwork and a number of mobile phones and tablet devices including a Nokia Lumia model and an Amazon Kindle. Lewis's former boyfriend admitted that he'd been gifted the items by Lewis in late November of the previous year. Bear those items in mind folks because when the technical boffins who do what they do so well examine these items 
The Nokia Lumia and the Kindle were found unquestionably to have belonged to one Catherine Burke and his son Niall respectively. They were the items that had been taken following her murder. Both items were also found to have been activated in the days following Cathy's murder and following forensic examination, traces of both Cathy's and Lewis's DNA were found on each. Following consultation with the Crown Prosecution Services, because these things do take time as we know, in January 2019, Cassim Lewis was re-arrested at Wakefield Prison on suspicion of the murder of Cathy Burke. On the 25th of January, Lewis appeared via video link at Wimbledon Magistrates Court where he was charged with a murder. Looking bored with proceedings, Lewis only initially spoke to confirm his name, date of birth and nationality, which he gave as British, but once he'd been remanded in custody to appear at the Old Bailey by District Judge Andrew Sweet, Lewis replied, Cheers, have a good day. Lewis's lawyer Jim Skelsey gave the court a preliminary indication of an intended not guilty plea and this remained the case at the pre-trial hearing which was held on April 16th of this year. This was even when Lewis was faced with the scientific evidence police had amassed and even able to show that between hearings further scientific examination had been able to extract his DNA profile from the binds that had been used to tie Cathy's wrists. In response to this, on the 1st of May, Lewis submitted a written defence statement in which he admitted that he was responsible for a burglary at Cathy's home, explaining the presence of his DNA profile that police had discovered in connection with the crime, but was not a killer. He was committed for trial for a murder, which was scheduled to begin at the Old Bailey on the 16th of July 2019. However, on the eve of his trial, on the 15th of July, Cassim Lewis broke under the overwhelming evidence and changed his plea to guilty of the murder of Cathy Burke. Negating a protracted trial ahead of sentencing, Lewis appeared in the dock to hear when the circumstances of Cathy's death were detailed to the court. The court heard how police were called to Miss Burke's home at 7.03pm on November 16th, 2017 after her friends and neighbours had raised concerns for her welfare. Miss Burke's naked body was found inside the property in a back bedroom with clothing placed on top of her and a post-mortem examination held on November the 18th gave cause of death as being stab injuries. There were no defensive injuries, the court heard, as prosecuting counsel, once again Crispin Aylert QC, said, The prosecution's submission is that Cathy Burke must have simply been too terrified to resist evil beyond description isn't it according to mr aylett after 6 30 p.m on the evening of november the 15th lewis a prolific burglar who had committed at least nine residential burglaries in the area over the previous few years entered her home through a back door that was either open or unlocked and had overpowered kathy she had her hands and ankles tied a scarf tied around her mouth and had been stripped naked before being stabbed four times in the abdomen, neck and between the shoulder blades. Lewis had also stolen Miss Burke's two mobile phones and an Amazon Kindle tablet from her son's room. 
The court then heard how following his arrest for the murder of Juliana Tudos on January 1st, 2018, Lewis was further arrested on suspicion of Miss Burke's murder on the 2nd of January following charges being raised concerning Miss Tudos due to the similarity and proximity of both murders and how he'd been released from that arrest pending investigation. But in May 2018, police had searched the property belonging to a former friend of Lewis where Lewis had originally been arrested back in January of that year. They found a mobile phone that was ultimately found to belong to Miss Burke and a Kindle found belonging to his son, both items of which could be forensically linked to Miss Burke and Cassim Lewis, whilst the pair of jeans also recovered from Lewis's home also confirmed a forensic link. There was very little that Jeremy Dean QC for the defence could say in the face of such evidence and Lewis's guilty plea. As the same court had heard just over a year previously, Mr Dean just tokenly told of Lewis's dreadful upbringing which saw him going to care in Britain and led him onto a path of crime to feed the drug addiction that he'd developed, all that nonsense. Lewis was then faced down in court by Cathy's son Niall Galbali who stared at him through the glass of the dock as he gave the following victim impact statement. When someone reminisces to a pregnant day in their life, the narrative usually follows a positive route. For me, Niall Galbali, my story is one of polar opposite. The 16th of November 2017 was the day my life was completely uprooted. My world came crashing down before me. In the midst of my second year at university, I received a phone call from a then neighbour to say that police and ambulance services have been outside your house for some time. I will never forget the chilling words that followed. Niall, I don't know how to tell you this, but they believe your mum has been found dead. Being 70 odd miles away in Brighton, feelings of intense despair and misery consumed me. Feelings that would increase in an unquantifiable amount the next morning when police informed me and my family that my mother's death is now being treated as a murder investigation. Growing up in London, I had unfortunately become accustomed to hearing about murders on a far too regular basis. Never, ever did I expect that a murder would land at my own front door. Nothing, and I mean nothing, prepares you for that. There are simply no amount of words that can describe the sheer devastation this has caused me and my family. My life hasn't been the same since, and my life will never be the same again. A wicked and senseless act that has caused an untold amount of pain. It took my mum some time to accept the fact that I was becoming a man, but she finally had. Our relationship as mother and son was blossoming. We had so much left to do together. The actions of this man, this evil being, robbed that from me, from us, and it's something that I will never get back. A massive hole resides in my heart for the loss of my mother. No amount of justice will mend that, but I take great comfort in the fact that the man responsible for such brutality has been caught. This is the closing of a horrible chapter in my life, but the opening of a new one, when I can leave this nightmare behind me. Powerful stuff indeed, eh? Niall then locked eyes on Lewis again, with pure contempt as he slowly walked back to his seat in the well of the court. Step up then once again Crispin Aylith QC, who summing up told the court the following. 
In May last year, the defendant pleaded guilty to the horrific murder of Juliana Tudos committed on Christmas Eve 2017. When the defendant entered that plea, he knew, and the police suspected, that he had committed the equally dreadful murder of Kathy Burke just six weeks before. By the time of the pre-trial hearing in this case, on April 16th this year, police could show that the defendant's DNA had been recovered from one of the ligatures that had been used to bind Kathy Burke, and they could also prove that he'd stolen her mobile telephones. But he pleaded not guilty. Then on May the 1st this year, he submitted a defence statement in which he claimed to have been responsible for no more than having committed a burglary at Miss Burke's house. For that to be right, there must have been some other depraved monster walking the streets of North London. But no, on Monday of this week, it was accepted that it was him all along. The prosecution submits that his plea on Monday had absolutely nothing to do with contrition and everything to do with the overwhelming evidence of his guilt not least of which are the hideous similarities between the murder of Kathy Burke and the murder of Juliana Tudos. It is a statement of the obvious, but whoever was responsible for the murder of Kathy Burke could only have been brutal and perverted. More particularly, the prosecution suggests his motive could only have been sexual because he would not, would he, have had to strip Miss Burke naked simply to steal her mobiles. On the other hand, this sexually inspired murder took place without any apparent form of sexual assault. The prosecution submit that these circumstances suggest there must have been a very real risk of the killer striking again, and so it turned out. Less than six weeks later, and on Christmas Eve, a second woman was murdered in North London in similarly horrific circumstances. The victim was a 22-year-old woman named Juliana Tudos, and like Kathy Burke, Juliana had been stabbed in the neck and abdomen. Like Kathy Burke, she had been left naked. Like Kathy Burke, clothing had been placed on top of her. Just as Kathy Burke had been gagged with a scarf, so a piece of denim had been wrapped around Juliana's neck. Like Kathy Burke, Juliana's wrists and ankles had been bound. Again, from the fact that Juliana had been stripped naked, this was obviously a sexually motivated crime. Just as with Kathy, however, whoever murdered Juliana had done so without any apparent form of having committed any sexual assault. That whoever was Cassim Lewis. On Thursday 18th of July 2019, the same presiding judge who had sentenced Lewis to life imprisonment the previous year, Mr Justice Marks QC, told Lewis, this was as grave a murder as one can imagine. You subjected your victim, a vulnerable middle-aged lady living alone, to an unimaginably dreadful ordeal. You are in my judgment an extremely dangerous individual, and the aggravating features of your case are very considerable. You pleaded guilty at the 11th hour and 59th minute, and the lateness of your plea makes your assertions of remorse ring extremely hollow. Lewis was then sentenced to a further count of life imprisonment to run concurrently with his previous sentence. The horror of his crimes at this time earned him a minimum tariff of 40 years to be served before ever being considered for release, which if he lives that long will take him to 2058 when he will be 72 years old. 
Lewis said nothing in response before being taken from the dock and back to prison. Following the verdict, Crown Prosecution Services prosecutor Sarah Dale said, Lewis is a dangerous sexual predator who is now admitted to carrying out two extremely brutal and violent murders. He's left in his wake a trail of bereaved families and friends and our thoughts are with them. Faced with DNA and cell site evidence that clearly linked Lewis to the scene of Kathy Burke's murder, he pleaded guilty on the eve of his trial. This means that her family did not have to face the painful prospect of facing him in court. The sentence means that he won't be released for a very long time. Detective Chief Inspector Catherine Goodwin from the Met's homicide teams within the Specialist Crime Command said, We still do not know why Lewis committed this horrific murder or the murder of Juliana just under six weeks after he killed Kathy. He's never given any indication as to his motives. These appalling crimes have left the Burke and Tudos families bereaved, two families who've had their lives devastated by the horrific violence this man inflicted on their loved ones. We hope the verdict today can bring some closure for the Burke and Galbali families. Kathy was a well-respected and popular member of her local community, whose many friends were immediately worried at her uncharacteristic failure to respond to them on the day after the attack. The scene that confronted police when they forced entry to a house on Thursday the 16th of November 2017 was harrowing. Having gained access to Kathy's house, Lewis subjected her to a violent attack of a terrifying nature. He then stole property belonging to her and her son. Six weeks later, Lewis then murdered Juliana after forcing her into a disused shed in a park in Haringey when she was on her way home on Christmas Eve, again subjecting her to a horrific ordeal. I'd like to pay tribute to the Mets homicide team that took on the investigation for both cases and the senior investigating officer who made the link between them at a very early stage and took the decision to arrest Lewis on suspicion of Kathy's murder before any forensic material was available to confirm the connection. The team worked painstakingly over a long period in order to secure the strongest evidence possible, which led to a guilty plea from Lewis for killing Juliana in May last year and a subsequent guilty plea earlier this week from him admitting to killing Kathy. I'd like to reassure the public that cases involving such a degree of sexually motivated violence are, thankfully, extremely rare. Rare perhaps, but sadly, they still happen, don't they? I chose Kathy and Julie's story not to try and pierce anybody's festive cheer. You're listening to a true crime show after all, aren't you? And I've said before that there isn't really anything such as nice crime, is there? But because, and I don't know if anyone else listening is like I am here, but around this time of year, I see people all happy and excited for Christmas, yet part of me can never help thinking of people who aren't there to share it. It started off as thoughts of those who were once close to me in my own life, but since I started doing the show a couple of years ago, I really have looked into so much horror and learned of so much tragic loss of life that there are now several other names complete strangers to me as well, who I also think of. You steep yourself in so much research when you make a show like this that you tend to empathise a lot, and an occasion or a date makes your mind go to certain people whose tales you've told, or whose tales you're planning to. 
Last year I did an episode called The Ghosts of Christmas Past and whilst preparing for a similar one this year I came across Julie's story which of course led on to Kathy's. Their tales struck me and they became names I'll never forget and I hope that with releasing the episode around this time of year they become names that you guys won't either. It's one of the especially sadder cases I've covered this one. To not even be safe in the sanctuary of your own home is bad enough and it angers me that people aren't safe like that or people can't walk through a park or something. So it's bad enough like the sanctuary of your own home is broken as in Kathy's case. But Julie heading home to change and so full of excitement on Christmas Eve that she took a shortcut home that she usually wouldn't just to get back to her friends quicker because she was so excited and she paid for it with her life. Well, that defines tragic to me. I found the entire tale such an incredibly sad one to research and some of the words from Kathy's and Julie's family and friends are ones that I won't forget in a hurry. Don't they seem to have gotten worse as we've gone on through this series? Kasim Lewis is certainly one of the most depraved individuals I've ever had the displeasure of coming across since I began the show and he now joins the ranks of the other scumbags that we've met throughout the past four series. Both killings he's responsible for, the known killings at least, are crimes of such a despicable ghastly nature and perhaps are made more so for the sheer pointlessness of them. Two lives for a Kindle and a mobile and a hundred quid. What a tragic waste of life. But the spoils from both murders, I believe, were very much an afterthought here. These were sexually motivated killings, undoubtedly first and foremost, driven by whatever hardcore pornography Lewis was fueled up on at the time. Police took a very dangerous sexual predator off the streets there, and I don't think it's being too dramatic to say that they stopped a serial killer in the making, if not already a fully-fledged one. I do believe that there may be other unsolved sexual assaults, perhaps even sex killings, that could be laid at the door of Kasim Lewis over the interim years from his conviction that entered him onto the sex offenders register in 2005 to the dreadful double murder that he committed two years ago. If you use exposure and sexual assault as a starting point, then you surely then just don't jump to double murder 12 years later. It's surely something that's built up to, isn't it? Police have looked at a number of unsolved stranger rapes and murders within the London area over this time frame with Lewis as a suspect in mind but haven't been able to connect him with any further unsolved crimes. I'd say to them, look again because this guy has to have done others and perhaps not necessarily just in London either. We know that Lewis several times over this period breached the conditions of the sex offenders register by not informing police of his intended movements, was he offending elsewhere, wherever he went? It does make you think, doesn't it? But Kasim Lewis is saying nothing about any other crimes he may have committed. Although he has nothing to lose by doing so, he has nothing to gain either, apart from notoriety and contempt. He deserves every single one of the next 39 Christmases behind bars for his dreadful crimes. However, whether he shall see each of them due to him living with the HIV virus remains to be seen. It's highly doubtful that anyone would shed a tear for him if he didn't get to see them all anyway. 
But put this absolute piece of shit to the back of your mind following this episode and instead focus upon two people who will sadly be very missed this and every Christmas going forward, Kathy and Julie. Think instead about the dignified words and testaments that you've heard throughout the episode from Kathy's son Niall or from Julie's parents or from some of her many friends and have a look in the show notes for several links to articles about each case where you can see for yourself images of both women in happy times and see why each was held in such high regard. Two women who left behind families and friends that loved them dearly and who were left heartbroken by their deaths because they had the misfortune to cross the path of the predator that is Cassim Lewis. As I've mentioned before, there are several links to articles concerning the cases we've looked at here today within the episode show notes this week, and also head over to the show's Instagram page, where I've shared several images concerning the case. I would, as always, love to hear your thoughts and opinions about the case, the episode concerns. There is an episode thread in this show's Facebook discussion group, should you wish to. Or as ever, you can get in touch through any of the show's social media should you want to discuss it or any of the other cases that we featured this series. And on that note guys, it's a wrap for not just this episode, but for the fourth series of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. But before I do go, it's the thanks time. 2019 has been yet another fabulous year for the show. I've managed to put out 48 episodes in total combined with the regular and Patreon bonus ones this year and the constructive criticism and feedback I've received from you guys, well, it helps more than I can say and I do listen to it, I do take it on board. I'd like to pass on my warmest thanks for all of the case suggestions that I've received, the retweets and shares of stuff that I've put out, the support that I've got and the many kind words and honest reviews of the show I've said often that there's no show without you guys, you're the absolute best and it's things like this that really do help make it. It's also been nice making several new acquaintances in the true crime community, getting to know and even meet several fellow show hosts this year and I've been thrilled to see new shows breaking through and established ones getting the successes that they deserve. Patreon bonus episode 24, Horrors of the Holidays, will be out on New Year's Eve Then I'm having a break for a few weeks, but she'll be back with Series 5 very early in the new year, as soon as February. I think this fourth series, although it's been a tad teeny tiny bit shorter than others, really has been my favourite one to date to have done. Though I did say that after the last, and perhaps I shall again after the next one, who knows. Before each series, I sketch out a working list of the cases I'm going to cover, And this one has differed massively from that that I sketched out beforehand. There's so many tales that I've penciled in that haven't made it into this series. I've already done the same with series 5 of the show, so we'll have to see how much I stick to that because sometimes other tales come out of nowhere and choose themselves. In the meantime, I'll start prepping for that soon, but I won't be a stranger and will still be reachable through the show's social media should you want to get in touch and suggest a case one for a listener episode, or even if you're just missing me more than my mum misses me being a baby and want to say hi, I'll be about. Also, just a reminder that if you can't wait until February, then amongst other stuff, there are 24 bonus episodes of the show available for Patreon supporters for less each month than the cost of a pint. Details are in the show notes, 
or it's the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, always with a podcast suffix on the Patreon site. For the last time this series then, I'd just like to thank you all once again very deeply for joining me, not just today, but for supporting and listening in throughout the whole series. You made it a great one, and I'm proud to have brought it to you. I have been, I still am, and hopefully going into 2020, still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, hoping that each and every one of you has a very happy Christmas and New Year, wishing you and yours good and safe times, and I shall catch you all again with the next one, Series 5, which I'm already looking forward to bringing you, and I look forward to you joining me for. And as we do each series finale, all that's left for me to say is don't have nightmares, do sleep well, and BBC, you remain twats. Take care and best wishes guys, stay enthusiastic, and goodbye for now.